0: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Coming up on Chopper's Politics. I think the key now is to focus on the daft ones. Let's get rid of the really daft ones that are holding us back and put in place the smart regs we need. And I'd rather be more targeted than create a huge parliamentary process where we go through stripping the whole lot out. Happy
2: New Year. I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at The Telegraph, and this is Chopper's Politics, Well, it's been a week where the long campaign for the next general election has finally burst into life with a bang. Today, Thursday, Sir Keir Starmer vowed to take back control... Now, where have I heard that phrase before? In an attempt to spread prosperity around the country. Later in this podcast, we'll discuss Starmer's version of levelling up with Shadow Cabinet Minister Nick Thomas-Simmons. And Keir Starmer's speech came just 24 hours after Rishi Sunak emerged from a somewhat curtailed winter hibernation to try and let the public know what Sunakism really is, if it's anything. The Prime Minister used his first major speech since becoming Prime Minister on policy to make five promises to voters to halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut NHS waiting times, and stop the influx of thousands of migrants in small boats across the channel. And he claimed those promises will deliver peace of mind for voters. Now, I don't know about you listeners, but given the past few years... I might need a bit more than that to get some peace of mind. So I thought my first guest might help. Science Minister George Freeman, MP. I asked him to give us five reasons to be cheerful as we stride purposefully into 2023. George Freeman, Science Minister, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to be with you, Chris. Happy New Year. Listen, it's pouring with rain. The NHS is in crisis. Hundreds of thousands of public sector workers are striking, including train drivers. Give me five reasons to be cheerful about 2023.
1: Go. The first is, um, it is a new year. And, you know, boy, do we need it after the year we've had. I mean, I can't think in 12 years in Parliament and 15 years around politics of a year that's been more disruptive, alarming, frightening, frankly. And I think, you know, good riddance. It's a new year and it's a new start. My first point is, a new PM and a new king, coronation coming this spring. I think it's going to be a moment to recognise the extraordinary legacy of Her Late Majesty the Queen. And this country is, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary to think how she's left us, modern, diverse, multicultural, positive, and we still have this network of Commonwealth allies and friends around the world. In a big and bad and dangerous world, the UK is far stronger, more secure and more supported by deep allies than I think anyone could have foreseen. You know, at the end of the end of the Second World War. So I, I think that's a really exciting moment. Our first ever Hindu Prime Minister uh, will be there at the coronation of an environmental king, a modern king for a modern age. Come on, number two, second one. This will be the year that we do come out of this grisly, miserable post-pandemic and post-Ukraine recession. And I thought the Prime Minister yesterday set out, yes, in a very You know, post-Boris, post-Liz, a very statesman-like, serious, diligent, careful... Boring, George. Was it boring? Maybe a bit boring, but I think that's what the public want. They want to know that we're not playing games up here in London. We're getting on with the really tough job of steering this economy through global waters and his five pledges this year, halving inflation, growing the economy, getting debt down, getting on top of the NHS waiting leagues. We've we've nearly cleared the two-year backlog from COVID and now we've got to work through the rest of it. And... Legislating to stop illegal human trafficking in the Channel, I, I think he's right in tone. If we can do the basics and get that right, the public, I think, will cheer. And he's made very clear that that sits on the back of a a bigger commitment to innovation, stronger communities. I thought it was very powerful yesterday how strong he was on family, not just the old-fashioned nuclear family, but family, <clears throat> the household looking after each other. So that's that's my second. Thirdly, incredible opportunity for this country. You'd expect me to say this in science, technology and innovation. I think what you're seeing, I'm seeing, but perhaps the public isn't feeling yet, but I think we will this year, is a shift from being a a service economy, pretty volatile, boom and bust, lots of crashes in the last 40 years, to being an economy much more strategically rooted in science, technology, innovation. And I mean, I give you just two or three examples. You saw this year the fusion energy results UK Atomic Energy Authority developing infinite, uh, effectively renewable, clean, green energy from the opposite of nuclear fission, not explosive, but fusion, here in the UK. That's a world first alongside the Livermore Labs in the US. I think this is a white heater technology moment, and a generation of children will grow up, as I did in the Lee of the 1967, the Apollo, and all of that, will grow up with a sense of this country as a science and technology powerhouse.
2: And that idea of the importance of R&D and science technology, that's that's sort of held quite close by Rishi Sunak, isn't it?
1: He's been a very strong supporter of it ever since I've known him in Parliament. And I was you know, delighted in last year's comprehensive spending review. He did make a big commitment. We're going to go to £20 billion a year on R&D. That's public, and we have to match that with twice as much private, which we're well underway in doing. He also gets that we need to make sure the City of London is actually financing these companies, scaling them, growing them here. For the last 20 years, we've been a bit of an incubator for brilliant companies that then float on NASDAQ and we lose them. And Rishi and I and the Chancellor are working on making sure that we uh, uh, use our post-Brexit freedoms, regulatory freedoms, to make sure the city can properly invest in our own startups. I mean, we're not doing badly. Just to give you some cheer, um, you know, in the tech sector, since 2020, in the last two years, 144 startups in the UK, all valued at each valued at over a billion pounds, employing three million people, all in the UK. 24 billion raised last year in the city, France 11, Germany nine. We're really good at this. stuff. In, in
2: terms of how it might affect the listeners to this, the consumer, will they see any change? That these are big, big macro things that you're describing there.
1: Yeah, well, the three million employees is the key. So that's three million people in the last two years in really good jobs in high-paid, fast-growing businesses. Uh, that is very exciting. If you're young, if you're a college school coming out into our economy, the real challenge is to make sure that they're not all in Shoreditch and London, uh, but we spread them all around the country, which we're in the.
2: I, I, I've interrupted you. My fault. Two, two more. Two more reasons to be cheerful. George Freeman.
1: Fourth, um, I think there's a huge regulatory opportunity. More importantly the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, have agreed with me. I don't mean using Brexit as an opportunity to race to the bottom, a bonfire of all our regulations, putting children back up chimneys, the sort of stereotype, but actually to use our agile regulatory freedom to set the standards in a whole range of exciting new sectors from space. Last year, I announced first space regulations to get rid of debris and uh, make London the capital of space finance, but also in agri-tech, in AI. If we set the standards based in the standards of this country here in the UK, a bit like the International Maritime Organization, you know, we led in shipping in the 1800s, which has been here for 300 years. If we set the standards in these new technology areas, we'll really help to drive investment and make London and the UK the headquarters of them. So that regulatory piece, I think people have wanted to see that dividend, and you will this year, I think, begin to see money coming into the UK because of it. And then lastly, we've announced we're going to 20 billion R&D in the UK. We need to bear in mind, China's at 300 billion. America's at... That's annual spend. Annual spend. But we do have two of the world's top three universities. We have five of Europe's top 10 universities. So we are really good at this stuff. The point I was going to make is, we have been traditionally a member of the European Horizon Network. We put in 14 or 15 billion in this eight-year round. Countries all across Europe, but also beyond, put in money. It's the world's biggest R&D club, if you like. Uh, We negotiated to be in it. Alongside Copernicus and your atom, the EU have blocked us in order to put pressure on over Northern Ireland. And the Prime Minister Charles and I agree that two years—it's—it's long enough to have waited diligently. And we're now going to set out our global plans to deploy that same money for global good. And there's some really exciting stuff around the world from polar research in the Antarctic and the Arctic, taking agri tech, drought-resistant crops to Africa, cleaning up space, working internationally with countries who share our values to make the world a safer place and to drive investment into the UK. And we owe it to the next generation to make sure that we make Brexit a moment where we are even more internationally engaged, but globally, the world doesn't stop at the EU.
2: So have so, so you given up on, on rejoining Horizon Europe?
1: No, we've, we've made very clear we're we're still up for joining. The phone's there when they want to ring, but we're not going to sit and bench our scientists. The way I've put it is, If we can't play in the European Cup of Science, we'll simply have to play in the World Cup of Science only. Well, so we'll start to spend that money and if they want it, they'll have to pick up the phone.
2: You remember this um, this Tigger group, this Task Force on Innovation, Growth and Regulatory Reform. What that means is that it proposed axing as many as 4,000 uh, redundant EU regulations by the end of this year, 2023. Are you concerned this might be delayed until June 26, the 10-year anniversary of the Brexit
1: vote? Look, I co-wrote the Tigger Task Force on Innovation, Growth and Regulatory Reform for Boris. What we've set out is a very strong platform for how we'd use our regulatory freedoms. It's in two parts. First part is, let's reject the precautionary principle and reject the very bureaucratic, top-down, slow, Strasbourg-Brussels approach to regulation and adopt a British approach, which is regulation for innovation and innovative regulation. Let's aspire to be a world leader in digital, smart and agile regulation, And let's make all of our regulators behave more like the MHRA, who did amazing things in the pandemic. So let's celebrate regulation and recognise that it's part of a really agile economy, first point. And then we've set out... We
2: we all agree with that, that that, that's agreeable. I mean,
1: that's what regulation should be, isn't it? Yeah, but it hasn't been. And and then we've set out 10 sectors, AI, fintech, agritech, space, where we've got an opportunity without legislation to put in place smart... Simple, clear regulations that will support investment. And I'm dealing with those in the Department of Business. I think that is a really sensible plan. Specifically on your question, you know, when we left the EU, in order to have consistency, conformity on day one, and not to create huge problems for UK business, we brought on all of the regulations that we were party to. I think the key now is to focus on the daft ones. Let's get rid of the really daft ones that are holding us back and put in place the smart regs we need. And I'd rather be more targeted than create a huge parliamentary process where we go through stripping the whole lot out. Some of it might be useless, but not damaging. Some of it might be damaging, and some of it might be absent. And I'd rather be more strategic about what will really help drive growth and get us out of recession.
2: So how many might go? I mean, there's around... I think two and a half thousand, another 1,500 more found in the National Archive, as many as 4,000. How many of them might go this year and, and how many might be held over?
1: Well, the PM and the Chancellor and the Cabinet are looking at that right now. My, my instinct would be, let's focus on the top 10% of daft regulations that are holding us back, get those done, then do the next 10%. But to be, you know, Whitehall would love nothing more than a massive exercise of jurisprudential legal parliamentary wranglings over that's not what we need what we need is growth (laughs) and we need investors coming to this country so I'd focus on the particular regulations that will drive growth and sort those first.
2: Richard Sunak your speech in in this week was was interesting but was
1: it inspiring? Well I think inspiring is an interesting word I think it was a speech for its time when I saw him walk up Downing Street on his own that day to come to the podium to take over and give a speech of real sincerity, seriousness, no bombastic self-congratulation, no triumphalism at all. I felt huge pride in our politics that we can still find people of that calibre, of that devotion, who are prepared to pick up an almost impossible job. I don't want to be light-hearted about it, but it was the equivalent of a relay race in which the person handing on the baton didn't just drop it, they threw it into the crowd. And I thought he set a tone there of level, honest, diligent, straight talking with the British public. And I think he's much more popular with the British public than he is with the SW1 commentariat, and dare I say it, uh, possibly many in the Conservative Party, which has been through a very turbulent and difficult time. And I think his quiet tone and style, his... I, for detail, I think will win through. And I think the British public will have heard yesterday a change of tone. It wasn't bombastic Boris or ideological Liz. It was careful, steady, considerate, statesman like Rishi. And I, I think two years is a long time. And I think once we come out of recession and government is stable under him and the things I've talked about are beginning to take fruit and people can see this country has bright years ahead as a global leader in some of the most extraordinary progress that mankind is making from the deep oceans to space to agritech to feeding the world britain as a nation helping drive sustainable development i think people will say why on earth would you want to throw all that in for somebody who supported jeremy corbyn
2: now george freeman final question you you promised me i think it was flying taxis about two or three years ago i'm looking in the
1: sky here Where, where are they Ah, uh, You won't see any today, Chris, here, but they did fly. I was a year early, to be fair. Uh, the first flying taxi flew in, I think it was Germany, actually, in 20... You last had me on in 2020, and it was um, tail end of 21. Gosh.
2: And where did it go to? A long journey?
1: No, it wasn't that long, but it's coming. And I, I was speaking to you then as the Minister for the Future of Transport, and, you know... The truth is we're in a transport revolution and we're going to see this year the beginning of autonomous uh, delivery pods. So GP surgeries, delivering medicines in, re- in remote areas. We're already seeing autonomous vehicles working in mines so that people don't have to go into the most dangerous places. So there were these technologies that I talk about, what's so important is as, they ad- as they're adopted in the wider economy, they create huge numbers of jobs and they make the UK a leader of new industries. And that's really how we're going to get out of this boom and bust cycle.
2: Well, the idea of a flying taxi is very attractive on the day when I can't see you face to face. I'm stranded up in Hertfordshire because of the train strikes. Thank you for joining us this week, George Freeman, on Chavez Politics Podcast. Thank you, sir. Happy New Year. George Freeman there. Now, as I record this on Thursday, it is the 12th night The night when revelry takes over and fools mock the monarch. Well, that's politics for you. But oddly today, we heard some language from a Labour politician I thought I would never hear. Let's have a listen.
0: It's not unreasonable for us to recognise the desire of communities to stand on their own feet. It's what take back control meant. The control people want is control over their lives and their communities. So we will embrace the take-back-control message, but we'll turn it from a slogan into a solution, from a catchphrase into change. We will spread control out of Westminster, devolve new powers over employment support, transport, energy, climate change, housing, culture, childcare provision, and how councils run their finances. And we'll give communities a new right to request powers which go beyond even that, All this will be in a new take-back-control bill, a centrepiece of our first King's speech. That bill will deliver on the demands for a new Britain, a new approach to politics and democracy, a new approach to growth and our economy. That
2: was Sir Keir Starmer with a somewhat unexpected message from his speech today, Thursday, in East London. So what does taking back control mean for Labour? With me now is Nick Thomas-Simmons, the former Shadow Attorney General who fought Jeffrey Cox over those interminable rows about the backstop and the frontstop and the Brexit deal and a committed Remainer. Labour frontbencher Nick Thomas-Simmons, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on.
3: Great to be joining Chopper's Politics Podcast. Lovely to be here.
2: We'll be trying to get you on for a while to discuss your brilliant new biography of Harold Wilson. More of that later. Just briefly, we're speaking on the same day that Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer has adopted language which Brexiteers might hold sacred. He says that he wants uh, the UK government, if he wins power in the next election, to take back control. What did he mean by that?
3: It speaks to the real desire for change that there is in this country, that desire for change that was expressed in the referendum in 2016. But it's a desire for change that you can see and hear when you are out all around the country. People looking at their local communities, not feeling safe out on the streets because they're blighted by antisocial behaviour. People not having healthcare there that they can rely on. I mean, I doubt we could name a public service in a better state now in 2023 than it was when the Conservatives inherited it in 2010. So it really does speak to this desire that people have for more control over their lives, for more devolution, but a transformation of our country and a desire for things to be better. If you want to get a passport, that you can get it quickly. If you want to get a driving licence, that you can get it quickly. If you want to go on the train or the bus that it's there to rely on, that you've got the schools and hospitals that you want to see. But it's also about, on trade specifically, because it's my portfolio, delivering trade. And that means, firstly, supporting and standing by our exporters here at home to try and increase exports, but to actually deliver on the promise of substantial trade deals around the world. At the end of 2022, that was, by the way, the date in the Conservative manifesto for 80% of our trade to be under FTAs. The government is somewhere just over 60%, so it hasn't reached that level, nor has it delivered the trade deal with the United States, nor was the India trade deal, which, if you recall, Chris, was promised by Boris Johnson by Diwali last year, being delivered either, so it's it's a failure of promise both at home and abroad.
2: Do you forgive them though some of that that slippage because you have got the Brexit psychodrama, seventeen to twenty, the coronavirus pandemic, twenty to twenty-two, the various Tory leadership dramas ad infinitum, the cost of living crisis caused by the Ukraine or helped to be caused by the Ukraine invasion. I mean they are being they are being buffeted, aren't they, by what are called black swan. Some of those are black swan events, events you can't foretold.
3: Well, nobody denies the impact of the war on Ukraine or indeed the worldwide pandemic. But I'm afraid the Tory psychodrama, as you put it, is very much the fault of the governing Mm. party. I mean, we're we're talking here over the past 12 months, we've had, what is it, three prime ministers, four chancellors, (laughs) five education secretaries. I mean, the government is absolutely responsible for that Huge instability they have brought to our politics, which has had this huge knock-on effect in the economy too.
2: As someone who, who, who battled with Geoffrey Cox during those Brexit yeah. wars as a Shadow Attorney General, uh, and someone who, of course, who supported Remain at the Brexit referendum, how do you feel about yeah. your leader Keir Starmer appropriating this language of Brexit?
3: I think it's absolutely the right thing to do because politics is about looking forwards, not about looking backwards and trying to refight tired old arguments there is now a settled will that's why we've said no return to the customs union no return to the single market no return to freedom of movement well,
2: i'm going to book i'm going to bookmark those pledges by the way thank you for that
3: please please, please do please do uh but the, the point is this of course we want to tear down unnecessary trade barriers in terms of the trade and cooperation agreement but it's not in the national interest now to reopen that debate with all the division that that would cause. So it's all about now moving forward and how we as a Labour Party can improve people's lives as a government.
2: You mentioned not looking backwards there, but let's look, let's look backwards a few, <laughs> a few decades to your book on Harrow Wilson. It's gone down very, very well. What do you think Sir Keir Starmer can learn from Wilson, who was the most successful Labour Prime Minister before Tony Blair?
3: Well... It feels eerily familiar, doesn't it, Chris, that we are here with, uh, as I would say, another 13 wasted Tory years, which is precisely what Harold Wilson said, of course, so successfully in 1964. And what Harold Wilson did is to both diagnose what the issues were in the country at that time in 1964, and it was the the failure of the the stop-go economics as it was known in the 50s and early 60s to deliver that lasting change, prosperity, equality, but also then looking forward at what the solutions would be. We remember, of course, the famous white heat of the technological revolution speech on the 1st of October 1963, where Harold was talking about the changes that science was going to make right across our society and then harnessing it for the benefit of people. But we remember, too, things like the huge social changes that Harold brought about and his government presided over in the 1960s. Uh, And it's quite a remarkable list if you think, you know, abolition of corporal punishment, capital punishment, liberalisation of divorce law reform, sexual offences act, which meant people could love who they wanted to without that fear. Uh, that someone who was was gay would have that knock on the door from the police or be blackmailed. The the Abortion Act, which took away the spectrum of backstreet abortions, but also things like the Open University, which made lifelong learning a reality. So there was a huge amount of social achievement and change as well. So it's both about recognising the problems of the country, but then offering the solutions as well.
2: And do you really think that Keir Starmer's got the room for that this time around? I mean, Wilson was was uh, blessed by uh, the early 60s, the Beatles, um, riding that wave of populism in 64. There was a feeling of, of change, of this new generation coming through post-war, who weren't scarred by the Second World War. It's different circumstances now, isn't it?
3: Well, of course, times are different. Nobody denies that. But I, I wouldn't say that today is, is culturally any poorer than the 1960s. In fact, the opposite, I think. are country's culture is one of our most remarkable things both at home and indeed in terms of our exports. But remember as well that the Wilson government's economic inheritance was very very difficult as well. Famously inherited of course that hugely overvalued pound which dominated uh, some years of that government. So it's not uncommon for Labour governments to have this difficult economic inheritance but politics ultimately is about choices and its choices that that Harold made for a fairer society back in 1964 that the Labour government could do again in 2024 yeah. or whenever the election comes.
2: And also, in '74 is also helpful, isn't it? After the Heath government, there because the way that the they had that dash for growth that didn't work out for for them, and and Wilson came in and just snatched victory in that second election.
3: There are some very strong parallels between that famous budget dash for growth and, of course, what happened with the. Liz Truss, quasi Kwarteng, uh, mini-budget, where just as, obviously, Rachel Reeves now responded, of course, to that back in September and set out her concerns about that, the Labour opposition, as it was, in 1972, Roy Jenkins, Harold Wilson, again at that time, also set out what the problems uh, would be. And unfortunately, in both cases, it did have the consequences predicted. And then those huge consequences for people up and down the country. The only thing I would say, though, that is different about 1974 is, of course, it's the one example where in post-war politics we've had a party come back after just one term in opposition, which is a remarkable achievement, I think, in itself, for Howard Wilson.
2: Yes, totally. What 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 I haven't asked you. I should ask you. What what led you to write the biography of Wilson? He has quite written about it already. I know you're an academic. Uh, went to Oxford, a tutor in your college age twenty one. So you're very clever. But apart from that, what what gives you the what 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 drew you to this? Well,
3: well, it's very kind of you to say that, Chris. And and in fact, uh, the first time I I heard of Harold Wilson was actually when I became a tutor. In fact, because I became a tutor at the age of twenty one and was. Told that this was something that that someone else had done previously, and, and Harold's name was mentioned huh? as having having done this. So that was the first time I felt a a, a bit of a affinity, mm. if you like, with with Harold Wilson. But it was also because I thought he was in need of a revisionist biography because I I struggled because I'd written biographies of Clem Attlee and Iron Bevan, both mm. of whom have got very high reputations, but Harold. Puzzled me. This was a Labour leader who'd won four general elections, who seemed to me not only to have put in place the changes we've discussed in the 1960s, but also in the 1970s, the foundation of modern day employment law in effect in that, you know, the Race Relations Act, kept British troops out of Vietnam, managed the European issue so that there was a settled position for quite a few decades afterwards. It puzzled me that biographies had not one chapter in them devoted to his achievements. So it seemed to me this was the time to do it. And I had the benefit of a lot of new papers as well, Chris, both Harold's unpublished autobiography, but the National Archives government papers, but also uh, wonderful papers from the Lyndon Johnson Library in Texas. I must just tell you about this this one set of uh, minutes, which Mm. I I just think are great, which, you know, I've been a a secretary of, you know, secretary of Branch Labour Party, Constituency Party, so I know minutes very well. And this particular set of minutes contains probably the best first sentence in a set of minutes I've ever heard. Oh, go on. And it's late 1964. Harold Wilson, Lyndon Johnson talking about Harold not wanting to devalue the pound. And the minutes start with present, James Harold Wilson, Prime Minister, Lyndon Baines Johnson, President. And with the delicious first sentence, both parties agree this meeting never happened. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs>
2: and did you get under into, into the skin of him? I mean, I know that he used to, he liked smoking cigars, not a pipe, didn't he, famously, and the pipe was a prop. Is that Was that even true?
3: Well, he, he it's not quite true in the sense that he did enjoy smoking both the pipe and the cigars. But again, there are lovely stories about this. The pipe came about because when he was negotiating in trade, actually, in the 1940s, he used the pipe to buy time. So that when the other side was making suggestions to him, he could take a puff on the pipe. And if you look as well, he uses the same technique in TV interviews, which of course you could at the time, couldn't you, mm. where he'd take a puff on the pipe. But again, there's a lovely story in the book. I think it's, it's 1975, where a group of essentially bank managers and executives, and he goes to a, to a lunch. And I actually spoke to one of the people who was at the lunch. And what happens is he, he fishes out the pipe and suddenly looks around the room and says, hey... Any journalists in? And they said no. So, therefore, they fished out the cigar and started smoking the cigar.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Any lessons there for Keir Starmer? Take up, take up pipe smoking for that big interview with Laura Koonsberg <laughs> or even with my podcast, uh, Nick Thomasson. <laughs>
3: well i think, I think I think any any time to think in the bare pit of the political interview is to be welcomed,
2: yeah, just finally on Harold Wilson, do you think he was slightly damaged by the famous lavender list of honors at the end of his time there with the the raincoat manufacturer and the rest? Do you think that was what unfairly traduced him and meant that biographers had a, had a bit of a downer on him for a few years?
3: Yes, I think that's definitely the case and and one of the things I wanted to do was to try to move beyond some of the things that had come to define him, I thought, rather unfairly. And that was one of them. And I think what you have to try and do as a biographer is you have to try to go back to the decisions that politicians and statespeople took at the time. At the time, yeah. And that's the absolute key thing to judging. And, and his decisions at the time yielded, as far as I can see, a lot of change in our society for the yeah. better and four election wins.
2: Well, Nick Thomas-Simmons, thank you for so much for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. It's a great read. We'll put a link to your new biography of Harold Wilson in the show notes of this episode for anyone who wants to buy a copy. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Nick Thomas-Simmons there. And I'd love to get your thoughts, listeners, on what Nick and George had to say about their respective party leaders. Please email me at chopperspolitics.telegraph.co.uk or on Twitter, we're at chopperspodcast. Right. Do so with us, listeners. Coming up, I'll be talking to former Tory MP Brooks Newmark about the life he's made for himself since quitting as an MP in 2015 and how he's inspired by Sir Nicholas Winton. Right after this.
3: If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast,
1: Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom
0: in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering.
3: NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent.
1: One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine. The latest in the same place you're listening to this and click follow so you don't miss an update.
2: Now, one of the black swan events of last year, these are events which you wouldn't ordinarily predict, was, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a dreadful conflict that sadly continues into 2023. Former Tory MP Brooks Newmark spent most of last year in the country itself, doing his bit to help Ukrainians during their time of need. So I asked him to tell me more about his work, how he got involved, and how one makes that difficult leap from being an MP to doing something else. Brooks Newmark, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you. Now, Brooks, you might be best known in Westminster as a a really excellent Conservative MP. You had to leave politics back in 2015 after what's known now as a sexting sting involving a tabloid newspaper, which made life very difficult for you at the time. But since then, you've reinvented your career as a
4: charity worker, most recently involved in Ukraine. What have you been doing there? Well, actually, we just take a step back, because when I left politics, I'd actually already had a charity in Rwanda, education charity, which I'd had for 15 years. And even though I had an education charity, I knew nothing about education. So I did a master's in education. Um, My charity is based in Rwanda, and I focus on education uh, in Rwanda. And I did my thesis, my master's thesis. They said, stay on and do a doctorate, uh, which I'm now doing at Oxford. And I had just finished my field research in Rwanda on February 24th, and I was supposed to be going scuba diving with a friend of mine, but I spotted on Instagram a friend of mine, a Latvian friend of mine, had a bus on the border of Poland. So I I said to my friend who I was supposed to be going scuba diving with, actually, I want to go to Poland. And so I literally came back to England, got some clothes for cold weather, and then went off to the Polish border with Ukraine. And I just thought I was going to go for four days. That's what I told him I was going to do. And um, he had one bus and we were moving people away from the refugee centres that were getting very crowded and moving people initially to Berlin, Luxembourg and Paris and Riga. I ended up then staying two weeks. And over time, we started clearing people away from the centres. And I just, uh, my friend from Latvia had to go back to Riga So I said to him, can you get me three buses because I want to go into Ukraine to move people away from Kiev, where the Russians were still trying to sort of push into and people were trying to get away. And one thing I'd heard was that there were unfortunately in war, um, there are a lot of people who take advantage of that and they were charging people lots of money to move people away. So we ended up offering these bus services for free. And we got very busy and we were moving people away from mainly Kyiv to Lviv and then on to the Polish border. As the Russians got pushed out, I thought, I look, you know, I'm going to stay on here. So I thought, where's the next problem? <laughs> um, and so I thought, well, people are trying to get away from Mariupol. So I so I said to myself, well, how are we going to get down there? The bus drivers I've got are, that I'm using are from Lithuania. They don't know the roads. So we contacted one of the national bus companies. And, of course, they have bus drivers, they have buses, but nobody is really using them at the moment. So we then uh, started using them. And then from Zaporizhia and from Venezia, we were moving people who were coming up from Mariupol, again, up to Lviv and to the border. Wow. How many in all did you you move? Uh, Well, at that stage, I probably moved about 2,500 women and children mainly, and some elderly men. I then shifted my operation. As Mariupol, you know, as the Russians then got control of Mariupol, there were less people moving away. I then shifted my operation to Dnipro and Kharkiv. I then had sort of two issues that emerged. And at this stage, I'd probably done close to 4,000, I think. I, I had two problems. One was that there were a lot of people that were being taken against their will from Kharkiv region to Russia. And and the next issue I had was that it was hard to get bus drivers to go into where there are bombs dropping. So I sort of thought to myself, okay, I'm going to go. You know, I said to the guy running the bus company, I'm going to go. You just need to find any guys who are going to go who wants to go with this crazy Brit that wants to go out to Kharkiv. So I got four bus drivers and two buses. So we went out to Kharkiv. And then we started moving people away. But we were finding that a lot of people were nervous about going with us. And the reason why is, as I said, there were people being taken illegally to Russia. So um, and and they were very suspicious that it was for free. So I did two things. I did a a promotional video with actually the local mayor and, you know, basically sort of saying, hey, I'm here. I'm from the U.K., You know, I'd throw in the name Boris Johnson because it was a brand name they all knew. Um, And, you know, we're here to help you. And it it sort of overcame some of the fear. But the other thing we had to do was to charge people 10 grivni. 10 grivni is about 10p. Because people felt if they're paying for it, they're not being taken illegally anywhere. Incredible. they registered online, which was great, because then the next thing was I had people's names, I had people's numbers, and I would do ran- we would do random calls to make sure people got to where they needed to safely and that they hadn't been ripped off, because that was another big concern of mine, because we're doing everything effectively for free, that uh, I want to make sure that nobody was, you no know, bus drivers or anything were charging them extra money for doing that. So come, I'd say come July i probably moved about 7,500 people. As the war zone kept shifting, there were a lot of people down near Izium. So I started taking buses down to there, and and um, we would have collection points, and we would start collecting people and so on. So by July, I was getting close to 15,000 people.
2: Goodness, and they all moved where? Towards Poland? Good, good
4: question. Poland? So at this stage, what I'm doing is I'm not taking anybody out of the country, Everybody who I met wanted to stay in Ukraine. What they wanted to do was to get away from the war zone. Yeah. So what I'm doing is I'm effectively then taking people from Kharkiv, taking them to Lviv, mm-hmm. and then in Lviv, they're figuring out do they see friends, do they you know, do they have contacts there and staying in the west of the country. Because at that stage, the west of the country is pretty safe. And a lot of times people are contacting me to move. So there's other stuff that I'm doing. So I would get a call because people heard that we're doing stuff. You know, can you move this orphanage from A to B? And so we ended up, I ended up last year, ended up moving five separate orphanages, three of them to Riga, where a orphanage there could take them on, look after them. One to uh, Gdansk and then one to uh, the western part of Ukraine.
2: Brooks, what an extraordinary testament to your work in Ukraine that's extraordinary can may i ask you briefly who's paying for this is it a is the uk government involved is it you personally a charity
4: yeah it's me personally and um friends of mine i've raised money from about 20 friends of mine
2: yeah what's it cost you personally and how much you raised um, from your 20 am,
4: friends uh, for me for me i've i've probably by the end of uh, let's say the full year i've probably will have spent about $200, $250,000 myself, wow. and will have raised about another $500,000.
2: That's incredible. And the UK government looks on in gratitude? Are they helping, given we are trying to support I Ukraine? I haven't heard
4: of I haven't heard of people. Not a peep. No, no, no. So, so that's it. Yeah. i just, I'm not doing it for gratitude from the UK government. But no, I mean, I've, and I have to say, the one thing that's amazing out there is there are a lot of, of volunteers, you know, British volunteers, other European volunteers, who are out in Ukraine doing amazing work, either doing smaller evacuations. So there are people going in, you know, they hear there's a, a an old lady or an old man somewhere, they'll go in and and take them out in ones and twos. But I I sort of think, well, you know, if I can do a small amount, I can do a large amount, and because of yeah. business background. You know, I'm very organized. I, I really think things through and I'm a problem solver. I mean, the one thing when I was in politics that I enjoyed doing was, you know, listening to people's problems and then trying to come up with solutions for those problems. And that was one of the things, you know, as an MP, I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the the minutiae of helping find solutions for people. And all I've just done is taken the same skill set I had in business that I had in politics now to the voluntary sector, which is problem solving.
2: Did you, did you want support from the government at all? I mean, you name
4: Jack Boris no, Johnson. No, no, I no, I don't. I, 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 to be blunt, I never expected it. The, the thing is, the big NGOs, the things, you know, they obviously have their protocols. They're concerned with safety and things like that. You know, I, as an individual, I can make my own individual risk assessments. I, I, I probably, probably, am a bigger risk taker than than most people.
2: Any family in the area or, or just you've been moved to, to do it? Well,
4: they, uh, that's a, that's another good question. So, so um, I'm Jewish and during the war, um, obviously I had a lot of huge amount of relatives from Eastern Europe, uh, yeah. mainly Lithuania and Poland, who um, died in the war. And, but there were a number of people who, you know, really stepped up at the Jews' time of need, People like, obviously, Oscar Schindler, Sir Nicholas Winton, and so on. And so growing up, these names of Schindler and Winton always resonated with me. And I always admired people who took a risk. Now, obviously, they took a different risk than I did. And certainly, Oscar Schindler took a much bigger risk with his his personal life. But I, I, I just, this sort of narrative that I grew up with has always stuck with me. So this was really just an opportunity for me to step up as someone who's Jewish, to people who are not Jewish,
2: you are—you're a modern-day Sir Nicholas Winton, aren't you?
4: Well, I, I don't know if I'm—I'm I'm that, but I mean, he—he's a—he's a role model, is what he mm. is for me. I, I can definitely say that, and he's definitely someone who is always in my mind. Just—just just growing up, Nicholas, Sir Nicholas Winton was amazing. I mean, beyond amazing, and—and and, um, took them fifty years to really recognize what he did, but. Um, he did an amazing thing but there were uh, as i said there were other people like oscar schindler and so on who also did did great things and and those people for me have always been role models and role models growing up so um it's just sort of i guess became part of my dna and this even though i didn't deliberately go out there to spend whatever 10 months now uh, in ukraine mainly it just sort of one thing led to the next and i just kept going because there were just kept more and more and more to do in fact what happened was i ran out of money and sort of had to come back here and then going out and asking friends and the problem is there's donor fatigue like there's yeah. war fatigue with with other people who sort of some people question why are we there why are we doing this there's also donor fatigue people say well i've already given you money brooks you know and stuff and i'm saying yeah but the war's going on
2: well, Brooks, just just briefly, you're, you're heading out. I think next week. Next week, after, week next. the week, yeah,
4: the fifteenth. Yeah, I'm back out there the fifteenth.
2: You're there till Easter. How can listeners help support you? I'm
4: actually building a, a website now because I didn't, I, I didn't have a charity or anything, but I've just set one up. Anyway, I've just set up a charity in Ukraine called Angels for Ukraine, which is what our brand has been. We'll put
2: link link to that in the show notes of this episode. I, I, and just just finally, um, I mean, completely fascinating, not to compare you with anyone else. In, in our political cycle here, we're seeing MPs leave Parliament at the moment, the next election, likely at the end of next year. People like Matt Hancock, uh, William Rag and others.
4: What's your advice to former MPs? And when do you finally shake off that tag? Um, you probably don't ever shake it off, I guess. Um, no. But um, to be honest, I think it's... Um, you know, with due respect to all journalists, they're they're always gonna find a hook for what you are. So whether former former MP or former this or someone who did this, you know, in in the distant past. I, I think I think I can I can only just say do do what you're passionate about. I think in politics you can never guarantee, you know, once every four or five years the electorate make a decision whether they want to keep you or not. So you've always got to be prepared to do something else. And you've got to have the flexibility to think about, you know, what else do I want to do in my life? If you like to do good, which is sort of what I like to do, you know, what can I do? Can I teach? Can I work with a charity? Can I set up my own charity? You know, there is lots and lots of opportunities to go, to do good things out there if that's really what people want to do.
2: Well, Brooks Newmark, former Tory MP for Braintree, and now... Well, a philanthropist on a grand scale in Ukraine and doing great work. And good luck and stay safe in Ukraine, Brooks. Thanks for joining us this week on Shoppers Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And that's all for this week, listeners. Thank you to my guests, George Freeman MP, Nick Thomas-Simmons MP, and of course, former Tory MP, Brooks Newmark. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. If you'd like more Chopper in your life in 2023, do check out my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. The link for that will be in the show notes to this episode. And as I said, the link for Nick Thomas Simmons' new biography of Harold Wilson and how to buy it will also be in the show notes to this episode as will the link to my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip Column, out every Friday evening at 7pm online and in Saturday's newspaper. And finally, for the first time in 2023, can I remind you to buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph if you can. I know you won't regret it. Until next time though, cheerio! Planning for your next trip?